Dunkin' is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Dunkin' with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Dunkin'. Sip into the fall season with the $3 medium pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusion apply. Valid on pumpkin spice signature latte only in all cold foam cold brew. This is She's On Call, a weekly show hosted by ENT specialist Dr. Sajana Chandrasekhar and general surgeon Dr. Marina Kurian. They'll be joined by guest experts to discuss an array of newsworthy medical and health issues. You're invited to ask the doctors anything. The physicians and their guests' views are their own and do not represent any institution. Please contact your doctor for any personal questions. Please hit share and join us live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at She's On Call. Hashtag She's On Call. Please welcome our hosts. Hello, I'm Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar. I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon with offices in uh, Midtown Manhattan and Wayne, New Jersey. And I'm Marina Kurian. I'm a general surgeon, but I do a lot of minimally invasive surgery and weight loss surgery in New York City. We have a great show today. We're going to be talking about children and adults. We have a wonderful pediatric interventional cardiologist on. Uh, her name is Dr. Nicole Sutton, and she's at Montefiore Pediatrics, Montefiore Children's Hospital. And we have Dr. Vikan Pamukian on. He's a vascular surgeon uh, for adults and uh, assistant professor of surgery at Northwell Health and Lenox Hill Hospital. And we are going to talk to them both about um, basically blood vessels up and down and sideways throughout the body. So if you know people who are interested in this subject or any subject having to do with medicine and would like to watch, please ask them to please hit share and like and tag them and ask them to join us. We are live on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, um, and we are closed captioned on YouTube and Facebook. Yeah, I just want to say though, this week's show may not have any sideways blood vessels. Just say. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Look at that pulmonary. Look at that pulmonary artery and vein, Marina. I beg to differ. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to learn a lot from them. We're so excited to have them. But as you guys know, we're going to talk a little bit about the news of the week. And I just want to say that I'm like so much less stressed these past few weeks. Right, talking about the news of the week. Um, we have so much positivity in terms of what's happening with the with the vaccines and what's happening with COVID, because of course we have to talk about COVID, but I'm feeling so relaxed, Sajina, that I almost feel like I can go without my Botox to hide my frown and upsetness, right? Like it's so much better. <laughs> so I feel like I've earned all these wrinkles, so I'm just going to keep them, but I agree with you. I think, you know, our numbers of cases are going down. Our numbers of vaccination here in the United States are really good. We're vaccinating over two and a half million people per day. Yesterday's number of four over four million, I think just reflected a couple of days um, together, but lots of places have 24 hour opening. We have in the United States, three vaccines um, 
working now. Um, and the Pfizer vaccine shows 94% effectiveness against asymptomatic transmission of COVID, which is um, the data from Israel. And it's really effective against the UK variant, which uh, seems to be much more contagious than the others. So um, that's really exciting. I want to tell you, my parents are currently in India and they're watching from Bangalore, India. Um, Maria Eftemiadis is watching from Sag Harbor, Long Island. Um, and uh, I'm just going to do a family show because my sister says happy Pi Day 3.14 to everybody. And my cousin, who is a pediatric cardiologist in Johnson City, Tennessee, and really helped us out preparing the questions for this show, Rajni Anand is watching uh, from Dolly Parton's home state of Tennessee. Your poor cousin. You're like, <laughs> oh, and my cousin, who lives where Dolly Parton does? <laughs> or Dolly Parton lives where my cousin does. How's oh, that? That's what you're saying now, but you know, <laughs> you know how you feel. So yeah, you know, that Pfizer vaccine, that's just excellent news, right? Like if we pop that back up, the other thing was it, it showed, uh, if we put that slide back, that it showed that it was 29 times um, more likely if they, if they were not vaccinated. And this is, as, I, as we said already, all data that came out of Israel, it's really just, you know, just really amazing uh, what what we've done in such a short period of time. And so this is part of the hope that I was speaking about, that, you know, we're going to be able to really hopefully really turn the tide of what's been happening. And, and I think that's already slowed. But we want to also look at, uh, you know, President Biden put out a fact sheet, which I think is really great. And he has made some changes um, this past week. He announced that all Americans should be eligible for, for vaccinations by May 1st which is really fantastic. Um, it's almost uh, unimaginable, but we can have small get-togethers by July 4th. I think that that's really fantastic. And also, how about the fact that we have briefings now, which I <laughs> think is so amazing. I could pull that right off the government side, which I thought was great. Um, you know, I agree with you. Uh Kess Bass is asking, is there a new variant in New York City? And part of the reason we know the answer to this is because we are getting these briefings. Yes, there is a new variant in New York City, but in fact, we believe that there are new variants all over and we are finally starting to test for those variants. So far, all the approved vaccines um, are helping significantly in terms of moderate, serious, and severe disease that needs hospitalization from all of the variants, which is really good. Um, speaking of vaccines, um, you know, I, we talked about the U.S. numbers. Israel still leads in terms of uh, vaccines per hundred uh, people. So they have 104 vaccines per 100 people. So I guess a couple of people. That's, that's weird, right? But <laughs> that's weird. That's wonderful. But I think this is also important because, you know, uh, you can see what each of the, the countries are doing. And it's just a nice look at um, what what we're able to do and how the vaccination process is going around the world. Unfortunately, not every country is on this list. Right. The world, if you look at the world data, they lumped everybody else in is just under, um, is significantly smaller, just four per hundred. And I think it also has to do with how the vaccines are being distributed. And also, you know, people are saying in the U.S., if we have 800 million doses to, or vaccines to be administered, then we might be hoarding and we may have to share. 
Yeah, I, you know, the World Health Organization issued a call yesterday or the day before saying 130 countries have not started vaccination. So we are not out of the woods until everyone who can be vaccinated is. Like herd immunity means 75 to 80% of all of us. Um, children are undergoing the Moderna trial right now uh, between 12 and 18 years. And it seems uh, that those vaccinations are going to start uh, pretty soon in the next, uh, maybe after about two months, we should get enough data. Um, so what happens once you get vaccinated? Uh, Marina, do we just like rip off our mask and just go, you know, celebrate? What happens to us? Yeah, well, you know that we know what we're going to do, but thankfully for everybody else, the CDC has also issued some guidelines. So if we can pop up that slide, you know, the CDC basically saying that if you are visiting with someone else who's fully vaccinated and you're indoors, it's okay to not wear a mask. Or if you're fully vaccinated and you're visiting with unvaccinated people who are at low risk for uh, severe COVID-19, then you can also visit with them without wearing a mask or physical distancing. Um, but the other, the other important thing is we don't have to quarantine if you're fully vaccinated. You don't have to test um, if you're asymptomatic, if you know that you know that you've um, encountered someone who has COVID-19. And these are big changes, you know, that, that, that we've undergone since the start of all this, since last March. So in the, in the course of a year, we've almost gone like 180, right? Not full circle but 180 uh, in the other direction, but that has to do with the vaccinations. You still wanna take precautions like wearing a, a well-fitted mask and physical distancing in public. Um, and just, you, you guys could read this too, but wearing the mask and maintaining physical distance is, is still important, uh, especially if you're also meeting with unvaccinated people from multiple households, you, you wanna avoid that. And I think this is also why President Biden said small gatherings by July 4th, we wanna avoid the much larger gatherings that we are seeing currently on spring break. You know, I have to tell you the best pictures I'm seeing uh, on social media now are grandparents finally getting to hug their grandchildren. And it is awesome. The grandchildren, and we talked about this last week, the young children are so good about wearing masks. It doesn't seem to bother them at all. And now they can finally hug grandma and grandpa. And that's amazing. So again, we are live on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Sri Srinivasan's LinkedIn. Um, we are so happy to have people watching from all over. Margaret Ambrosino is watching from Brooklyn. Um, I saw something else, but it flew out of my head. Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah. I can't even see that. My, my eyes are going in different directions. Um, we are so happy to welcome our guests, Marina. Yeah, so our guests are uh, Vic Pamukian, vascular surgeon, assistant professor of surgery at the Zipper School of Medicine and Northwell Health. And and he's practices at Lenox Hill Hospital, and Dr. Nicole Sutton, pediatric interventional cardiologist who's director of invasive cardiology at the Children's Hospital of Montefiore and associate professor of um, medicine. Nicole and Vic, welcome. Thank you. Oh, so good much. morning, everyone. Morning. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We're so happy that you're here. Um, we have so much to talk to you about. Um, but before we get to the medicine part, let's get to the life part. So Nicole, um, we had talked a little bit beforehand about um, 
the sort of paucity of women in pediatric interventional cardiology. Um, wondering how you found your passion, how you got there, and what the numbers are for your specialty. Sure. So um, I was always interested in pediatrics. I wanted to be a doctor since I was very young. And um, when I was in medical school, I found interventional cardiology, actually. I really enjoyed adult cardiology and the interventions there. But when I got to pediatrics, it put together the two things I really liked, which was working with children and working with my hands and doing interventions. I briefly toyed with the idea of doing surgery, heart surgery, um, but it wasn't the right fit for me. In pediatrics in general, pediatrics is an overwhelmingly female field. Um, however, in a lot of the subspecialties of pediatrics, there are more men than women. And pediatric cardiology has a little bit more men than women. There are, um, in within pediatric cardiology, there's many different subspecialties you can choose. And interventional cardiology, being one of them, has slightly more men than women. Um, my program was fairly mixed. We had a good number of female attendings and fellows who went into interventional cardiology, but that was not the case everywhere. And overall, there are definitely more men in interventional pediatrics than in um, than in regular, say, pediatric cardiology. Um, but we have recently actually found one of my uh, former mentors just started a group of women in interventions, and it's for women interventional cardiologists. And it's been a nice way to get more junior people involved, get to know people, get to help them form connections to move on in their careers. So I have to give a shout out to your institution because Montefiore, was woke well before anybody was woke um, because otolaryngology at Monty with Dr. Rubin at the chair had at least 50%, if not more women residents. He never did not believe that women could be surgeons, right? So I think there's something in the air up there in the Bronx that's really good. Yeah, so we, we do have actually even now our fellowships, our residency is pretty well mixed. Um, and it's a nice thing to be able to show, you know, people that it's doable. So, you know, you, you it's hard sometimes to imagine how your life is going to look like if you've never seen anyone else do that. When I was training, I actually didn't train at Montefiore. I trained in the Bronx, um, in Boston. There were plenty of female attendings with children working in that program. And so it was easy to see how you could put all of those things together. You know, um, it, it is, it's wonderful to lead by example. Uh, at NYU, the surgery department has probably the most female faculty and, and actually the residency is also at least 50% most years. Uh, one year we were like, all the chiefs were women, except for our, our, our there's an integrated residency, right? So the cardiac guy, there's one guy, so it was all of the ladies, lady surgeons and then, and then one. But it was uh, very impressive and, and, and it's always, as I said, wonderful to lead by example. Speaking of which, Vic was my resident, and I was um, going to say that. Yeah, you stole that from me. Instead of joining me in minimally invasive surgery, he was like, "You know what? I think I really want to do vascular." So, Vic, tell us how what what drew you to doing vascular surgery? Which, by the way, I find very intriguing, and I, and I've always loved vascular, except for a lot of the vein work. But you get you talk right. about you right. So. Um, so when I was a resident, uh, Marina was my...
Switching to Geico is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, Geico makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7 online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. Well, if you switch to Geico, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat, and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, Geico has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to Geico. It's obviously a good idea. Attending, um, although she looks so much younger than me and still keeps that, maintains that beautiful look of hers. Um, and she, uh, she was a, a good trainer. She was a good mentor for me. Then I had another great mentor uh, who... Um, took me under his wings, uh, Dr. Ahmed. And um, I loved doing the surgery. I loved the intricacy of the major surgery, the aortic aneurysm surgery. I loved doing the microvascular surgery, whether it was uh, bypasses to the leg and the carotid surgeries. And also, uh, vascular surgery is not just a surgical specialty. It's also a uh, almost a, a family medicine kind of uh, specialty. Uh, I see patients with diabetes, I see patients with hypertension, carotid disease, cardiac disease. And so this, the patients stay with me for life. We don't just operate on them and they go away. Um, my patients see me at least once every six months to either check on their bypasses, check on their carotids, check on their aneurysms. So the, the patients maintain uh, their relationship with me. And the great thing about that is that I can see them grow, I can see them get old, and, and the families are there with them. Uh, so I like that part of it. I love I like sitting and talking to patients. I love being in the office and seeing patients. I know it doesn't uh, correlate well with, with surgeons that you know usually they like to be in the OR a lot. I actually enjoy being in the office and seeing patients and talking to them because uh, that kind of uh, gives the, the the path to maintaining great care to patients. I love that actually. It's actually one of the reasons I chose ENT is because we see patients of all ages, but we see them over the course of their lives. So I know people for 20 years, 25 years, you know, I've celebrated their life experiences with them, which is uh, extraordinary. Um, let's shift gears and talk a bit about how the heart works in a normal condition first, Nicole, and then. What are the kind of things that can happen um, in utero? I know that the heart is fully formed by, I think, four weeks in utero and is beating at eight weeks. And, you know, uh, Marina and I have definitely both had the pleasure of uh, hearing our baby's heartbeats uh, in utero. Um, can you tell us on the first graphic, how does the blood flow through the heart? And then talk to us about things that can go wrong. Sure. So as you said, yes, the heart is one of the first organs that works in utero and needs to work in utero. So if it does not work, the fetuses will actually get sick. Um, and that can that can have some impact on which diseases we see in, in newborn babies. So when we talk about the normal blood flow through the heart, the first place that I usually start was where the blood comes back. So the blood comes back to the heart 
through the superior and inferior vena cavas, which are the blue structures coming into the right atrium. That is the blood that's been used in your body. It had all the oxygen taken out of it. And that's why we often draw it as blue in pictures. It goes into the right atrium and then it goes to the right ventricle. And from the right ventricle gets pumped into the pulmonary arteries in the, where it goes into the lungs. In the lungs, the blood gets oxygen and then returns via the pulmonary veins to the left atrium. From the left atrium, it goes into the left ventricle and then the left ventricle pumps the blood throughout the body from the aorta. And so the blood will make that circuit around your body every, you know, either 60 times a minute, 80 times a minute. And depending on your size, it's faster when you're smaller and gets, the heart rate gets smaller when you're bigger. And that's why you see that difference in heart rate between say a newborn baby and an adult. Now the common congenital heart defects are dependent on which part of the heart doesn't form well. So you can have holes in your heart. So that would be something like an atrial septal defect, which is a hole in the top part of the heart, or a ventricular septal defect, which is a hole in the bottom part of the heart. You can have a large hole in the whole middle of the heart that involves the atrium and the ventricles and the valves, and that's called an atrioventricular canal, which you see there on your list. You can have um, the aorta and the pulmonary artery can get switched around with each other, and that would be transposition. That means that the aorta is coming off the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery is coming off the left ventricle. And other things you can have are problems with your aorta. It can be too small. It can be in slightly off position. So all of those things are things that we can see in newborn babies. So we have a, a graphic about sort of six facts of congenital heart disease, which Marina found. And I thought these were really interesting. Um, you know, the fact that the heart uh, heart disease is the most common type of birth defect and really affects 1% uh, of children. Um, and a quarter of these kids need surgery or procedure before they're one years old. But almost all of them live into adulthood. So I know you mentioned some of these. What, what are you seeing where you are? So yeah, we see actually, you know, congenital heart disease, as you're saying, as you see here, is very common. And it can run the spectrum from very mild things like small holes in the heart to very um, significant congenital heart disease where the babies need surgery within hours or days of being born. And so that's why you see that there's 25% of these babies need a procedure very early in their life. One of the things that has changed recently in some of these outcomes is what's called the CCHD screen, where the it's the newborn screen that we now do for congenital heart disease. So after babies are born, most people know about the newborn screen where we take little drops of blood from the baby's heel to look for metabolic disorders. With this added a few years ago was a screen for congenital heart disease and critical congenital heart disease. What that is, is that we check the baby's saturations in the upper and lower half of the body within 24 to 48 hours after they're born. And that way we pick up some of those very significant heart diseases that um, will need surgery very early in life and that if not picked up can lead to very bad outcomes. 
Um, so that's that changed a little bit what we're seeing and how babies are surviving. The other thing that's impacted the long-term survival is a lot of the surgery that has come out in the last, say, 20 years has really made it so that people are surviving longer and longer with congenital heart disease. We have patients now in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who are surviving with congenital heart disease. And these adults with congenital heart disease now outnumber the number of children with congenital heart disease. That's a, a wonderful statistic, right? Like to be able to say that we've made such an impact. And, you know, it, we've seen this in a lot of different aspects that we're not going to talk about today, but like cystic fibrosis is a great example of how we've really prolonged quality of life and, and length of life with um, our intervention. So that's really wonderful. And we're going to dive into a little bit that later. But first, we have to ask Vic a few questions because there's so much... Um, about vascular that many, many people around the world experience. But one thing we want to start off with is peripheral artery disease. And you guys now call it PAD. Or do you say PAD or PAD? What do you say? But let's uh, PAD, I think we call it PAD. Okay. But anyway, so that those are um, issues that can affect you when you're, when you're walking, can even um, affect uh, a lot of Sometimes even the arms, like, you know, I want to throw out Paget Schroeder because, you know, we love that. But uh, Vic, let's talk a little bit about peripheral arterial disease and how are the common symptoms and people might be like surprised to know, hey, I have an arterial issue. Right. So um, uh, we see a lot of patients who are referred to us uh, in the office uh, who come in and say, oh, my circulation is bad, which is the common uh, misnomer uh, we see uh, uh, in the office. Uh, and usually these are patients who come in because they have cold feet, uh, they have cold hands, um, uh, and usually that turns out to be Raynaud's disease. And Raynaud's disease is a, is a condition where the microvascular, the smallest blood vessels, which are micromillimeters that you can't see with your own eyes, spasm at the tip of the fingers or the toes and in the foot and causes you to have a cold feeling. So that, that, that does not denote that you have peripheral vascular disease. Peripheral vascular disease is, is a condition where the blood in the arteries does not reach the muscles in the leg. And usually patients come in who have peripheral vascular disease or peripheral arterial disease have a blockage in the artery, which is that the red blood vessel that Dr. Sutton was talking about a few minutes ago. And the blood, when it's coming out of the heart, tries to go down inside the body and splits by your belly button to go to either side of the leg, um, that artery has a blockage in it, whether it's calcium or plaque or cholesterol buildup. And that does not allow the blood to go through the artery and down into the muscles of the leg. And then when that happens, because our muscles need the oxygen to function, the muscle becomes sore. It almost feels like there's like a noose on your uh, calf or someone punched you in the calf or punched you in your thigh whenever you're walking. So peripheral arterial disease, the way we know it is a patient comes in and says, Dr. Pomokian, I'm walking down about one block or two blocks or 20 feet or 30 feet. And suddenly I feel like someone is squeezing my calf and I have to stop. Um, I can't continue. And about a minute or two later, the pain goes away and I start again and it comes again. So that's when we know that the flow of blood that's going from the heart is not reaching the muscles in the leg. And that's where 
the intervention comes in to see if we can open up that circulation and get the blood down there so that the patient doesn't have discomfort. So again, before we, if, yeah, no, you're, you're fine. Before we go to how we intervene, can we talk a little bit about how people get these plaques? Um, what are some of the um, inciting factors? Well, we, um, well, we all know that um, smoking is uh, the one of the biggest offenders, uh, cholesterol, uh, diabetes, uh, high blood pressure are the main uh, uh, actors in, in, in the show. Um, and then whenever you have somebody who has all three or four of them, or you add them together, the diseases, it causes buildup of plaque in the artery. So smoking causes arterial damage. Um, and the arterial damage, which is the inside lining of the blood vessel that brings the blood, smoking causes, let's say, cracks, just to simplify it. And the cracks need to heal. And when the crack heals within the arterial wall, it causes scarring, and the scarring builds up. And as it builds up, it causes narrowing of the tube. Uh, think of a garden hose, let's say. And as the blood is trying to get out of that garden hose, it won't because there's buildup of stuff in it. And so there's blood doesn't reach until the end. So again, um, and you can see on the graphic there, on the left side, there's a normal artery where the blood is going down. And one on the right side, that black that plaque is built up, the yellow stuff. Uh, it doesn't allow the, for the blood to circulate down into the leg and causing that discomfort in the calf uh, or even ulceration or, or like a hole in the, in the skin or infection and even can lead to worse situations as gangrene. You know, there's a term that um, is used called intermittent claudication, right. which is, you know, sounds like you get a French guy every so often. But uh, uh, what do you, can you explain what that is and what people should look out for? Because my leg hurts sometimes, but I'm pretty sure I don't have peripheral arterial disease. Right. So again, intermittent claudication is intermittent, meaning it comes um once in a while and it, and it goes away. And that once in a while is always with exercise. So whenever somebody comes in and we tell them you have intermittent claudication, means that when they're at rest or sitting and having dinner or watching TV, they don't have the discomfort in the calf or in the thigh. Uh, but whenever they start walking, uh, the pain comes and then you stop and it, the pain goes away. So it's intermittent. That's why we call it intermittent claudication. And again, it's, it's a very uh, pathognomonic, uh, finding in a patient who comes in and says, I'm walking with my uh, partner, we're in the, in the store, and at every aisle I have to stop for a minute or two uh, and then catch up because my, my leg is hurting me and I can't, I can't get through the whole day without walking. Well, That's a, that's a great explanation. Um, you know, we have some questions coming in from our viewers. Um, so we have so many questions for Nicole right now. Uh, Miriam Berkeley says, how many different tests might reveal congenital heart disease? So what, what happens in utero that we might be able to predict this? Because you said sometimes babies need surgery within a couple of hours, days of being born. Um, and then Pulsani Anapurna says, Asians have more of this in babies. What's your advice to mothers during pregnancy of what to eat or other ways to prevent or uh, somehow intervene to make heart disease less, uh, less? And then we have another couple of questions, but let's start with those two. Sure. So um, 
in general, um, there there is um, congenital heart disease does generally not run in families unless you have a first degree relative with congenital heart disease. So your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. If you have someone very close to you with congenital heart disease, we screen the baby, especially while you're pregnant. So everyone knows that while you're pregnant, you have ultrasound. Here's to getting back together, to planned lunches and unplanned cookouts, to grandma's recipes and smells that take us back, to passing down plates and traditions. Here's to warm embraces and familiar faces, to your best friends becoming best friends, to scheming, dreaming, and food still steaming. Here's to laughter and love, to growing closer than ever, for all of life's get-togethers. Chinette, here's to us. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Where new stories meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami! And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. Sounds to look at the baby and to check the way the baby's developing. On that regular fetal ultrasound, the baby's heart is checked. And the heart is checked to make sure that there's four chambers like they're supposed to be and that things are connected the normal way. Some of those things, those congenital heart diseases, can be seen very early in pregnancy because the heart's already developed. And when the OB ultrasound shows that there might be a problem or that there is a problem, the patient, the mom, then gets referred to cardiology, pediatric cardiology, for something called a fetal echocardiogram. So we can actually do an echocardiogram like we would do on a person that's outside, so an ultrasound of the heart of the baby's heart. So in the current era, most babies are diagnosed prenatally. So if you have your OB ultrasound and there's a question, you will get sent to a pediatric cardiologist and have a fetal echocardiogram and then have hopefully get diagnosed with congenital heart disease. Some of the most significant congenital heart diseases, such as when you have one ventricle, which is called a single ventricle, instead of two, most of those are actually diagnosed prenatally. And we sit down and we make a plan with the OBs and with the um, neonatologists on what's gonna happen to the baby as soon as they're born. They may need to be put on medication right away. They may need to have special IVs put in, and they may need to de be delivered in hospitals that can handle all of those things. Sometimes though, the babies are not diagnosed prenatally and those babies can get very sick, which is why the CCHD screen was um, developed, was to pick up the babies that were not picked up in utero so that we would know um, we could diagnose them earlier and they won't get as sick before they have their surgeries. Thank you, Nicole, for that. We have more questions coming in. We do love that our viewers uh, ask these great questions. And so, Vic, for you, there are a couple of questions. Chris Ramanathan asks, are varicose veins rel related to PAD or different? And then Sandra Yin, who's watching, says, watching from West Virginia's Eastern Panhandle, I have always thought we lack vascular literacy. Are there any common misconceptions surrounding vascular health? 
Easy questions. Easy questions, right. So the, the first question with varicose veins, uh, the, as, as described before, the varicose veins are the venous side of the body. So varicose veins have nothing to do with peripheral vascular disease. So on the venous side, uh, the varicose veins are just uh, unsightly looking. They can be painful. They can burn. They can itch. They can have eczema. They can have ulcerations. Again, that tissue loss, the, the hole in the, in the skin. So those can happen from the varicose veins. But, but if somebody has varicose veins, they do not have peripheral vascular disease and it, they don't have circulation issues because if you have varicose veins, you are extremely unlikely for you to have an issue long-term with your lower extremity, meaning uh, unlikely for someone to lose their leg, God forbid, right? With varicose veins, the most that's gonna happen is gonna get worse, it's gonna burn, it's gonna itch, it's gonna hurt, and then that can be taken care of. For With peripheral vascular disease, if you do not take care of the arterial blockage, you can go on to having uh, ulcers or gangrene or even, um, you know, amputations. So, so peripheral vascular disease is completely different from varicose veins, two different kind of uh, disease processes. So, you know, those spider veins, do they always go to the worsening pictures that we saw? Do they always, do they start as spiders? Some of us have them. Or, and then do they go on to sort of the bulging, painful, um, skin changes, or, or do they just sometimes just stop there? Right. Again, so the, so the spider veins are the, the small capillaries that are within the skin itself. So the spider veins do not progress to become varicose veins. The big varicose veins that we sometimes see in pictures, uh, if you can put the picture up, the slide back up, uh, those are like grape-like veins that are on the back of the calf or on the thigh. So those are varicose veins those are not the same thing as spider veins so if you have spider veins your spider veins are not going to degenerate to become varicose veins again again those are two different processes happening in the body and spider veins are treated cosmetically with injections um no surgery is needed for that and for the varicose veins uh we can laser them or surgically remove them uh to make the leg looks normal so again no two different processes Lasers go everywhere. And then the other question was about any common vascular misconceptions. Um, you know, va vascular disease uh, uh, hits everyone. Um, but as long as you're healthy and, and your sugars are under control if you're diabetic, and if you're not smoking, uh, you can ward off the disease. Um, and you're, you're doing your exercise regimen. You're going to ward off the disease. It's not going to come to you. Um, so so the mis there's no significant misconceptions. I think everybody is kind of slotted in their, uh, <clears throat> in their uh, box. Uh, as long as you're keeping healthy, uh, it's unlikely for you to degenerate to become a vascular patient of ours. So, um, you know, we have a question from Posani Anapurna again um, about um, sudden death later, which is very frightening. And, I, and I'm going to say that this is going maybe difficult conversation for people who are listening to us. But there are athletes that we hear about every year, young, healthy men and women who just collapse um, on the court or on the field. Uh, we have a little bit of a graphic about that. But is this undiagnosed, undetected congenital heart disease or uh, what is the cause of this, Nicole? 
Yeah, so there there is an incidence of sudden cardiac death in young, healthy people. And it usually catches a lot of um, headlines because it's usually, you know, of someone who's very healthy. The, the classic story is it's a teenage basketball player who dies. Um, usually, so it can be that you have a structurally normal heart and you have a funny rhythm in your heart, such as long QT syndrome, or that you have a different arrhythmia. So a problem with the rhythm of the heart, it's, it can be an abnormal structure of your heart. That's something like say hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, the same type of um, congenital heart disease that we diagnose in babies, say like babies who turn blue, is not what is um, happening to a teenager who dies suddenly when they were um, playing basketball at 18. And those are very different. So yes, what, what is recommended for athletes, especially competitive athletes, is by the AAP or the American Association of Pediatrics is a specific type of questionnaire um, along with um, a full physical exam by their pediatrician to kind of screen for some of these things. A lot of the rhythm issues like long QT syndrome can run in families um, and some of the structural abnormalities like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or dilated cardiomyopathies can run in families. So yes, there are some issues that can run in families and that can be associated with this sudden death, especially in young athletes. You know, Nicole, we want to switch gears and talk a little bit about the congenital heart defects. Um, but one thing I want to ask before we, we do switch and, and talk about patent ductus arteriosus and all those, um, you know, things that you actually do the interventions for, uh, I want to ask about like those viral illnesses that that athletes can get. Like sometimes we attribute sudden death to, you know, something, they got a viral illness and then they developed a cardiomyopathy. And I think our viewers and our listeners are aware of cardiomyopathy just because of what COVID-19 has done um, mm -hmm. after the, the illness and then seeing the results and changes in the heart. So um, it is actually not uncommon for children and young adults, teenagers, and even adults to develop something called myocarditis. And myocarditis is an inflammation of the muscle of the heart. And that can be due to a virus. And in children, there's a few viruses that are very well known to do that, such as Coxsackie virus and actually rhinovirus, which causes the common cold. What we've discovered in the last year is that the COVID virus actually causes that as well. So there can be, with COVID, acute changes during the acute illness of that are consistent with kind of a myocarditis-like picture. And then there are actually patients who are presenting after having a fairly um, asymptomatic COVID infection with a picture that we call MISC, which is a um, inflammatory syndrome that occurs after you've already recovered from your COVID. And that usually is a few weeks to a month or two later. And those patients have um, usually positive COVID antibodies. So we can see that they had a prior infection, but generally they weren't sick enough during their COVID to be admitted to the hospital. And we have been seeing a fair amount of this in New York and around the United States in children who had um, an asymptomatic COVID infection. 
those patients are treated the way we treat most viral uh, myocarditis with a lot of supportive care. Um, and they may or may not need to be admitted to the hospital. They may or may not need to be in an ICU and they may need medicines to support their heart function. In general, most patients with viral myocarditis, their function recovers over time. Not 100% of them recover, but most patients with viral myocarditis do recover. And that's the good news. It's very good news. It's a little too soon to know what uh, the long-term impact from COVID, um, but with other viral processes, they tend they do tend to recover. Vic, you know, um, just because we always talk about COVID now. Or do you guys see in vascular some changes after the surge, after their infections that, that you've been seeing commonly? Yes, actually, um, during the height of the pandemic, uh, around April or May, we started seeing a lot of young people coming in with significant blood clots, um, thrombosis, or where the clot is in the vein, and the clots go up into the lung and give people pulmonary embolisms. Uh, so we started seeing a lot of young people uh, people coming into the office or to the emergency room with significant clots within their legs, all the way up to the veins in the abdomen, the iliac veins or the vena cava. And we need to do emergency surgery on them uh, to declot the vein, to take the clot out with suction machines that we have. Um, and so we saw a really significant increase in DVT, deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary with, with patients, that was one. Uh, and the other thing we started seeing a lot, because, I mean, we deal with the legs and feet all the time, was uh, COVID toes. And a COVID toe is when you come, when the patients come in and they've had a, the virus, um, and whether it's, you know, in the acute phase or in the long-term phase, they have discolored toes. Uh, they look purple. They kind of look like they're blanching. Uh, uh, they have significant discoloration in the feet. And... Um, it, it, and that did not cause any significant long-term sequela. They usually recover from it. But whenever we saw the uh, the blue the blue toes, we started calling them COVID toes, and we're seeing a lot of that still in the office. Not as often as we were seeing them in uh, the fall and the winter time, because now the virus is coming down a little bit. But those are the two things that were like jumped out at us. But the DVT and uh, and the thrombosis and the pulmonary embolism that we saw was significant and was very, very uh, scary for us. So Vic, did you have to open, operate on them or, or remove the clot? Or is this something that's amenable to balloon uh, venoplasty, something like that? Can you stick a balloon in there and blow it up and make things go away? No, there's well, a suction thing. Right, so, <laughs> so, thing. So, the way, yeah. so, the way, so the way we do, we deal with the blood clots is uh, from behind the knee, uh, the patient's lying on their stomach uh, we go in with a small needle with an ultrasound and we go inside the vein and we're able to put a, actually such a, a suction catheter and we go up with the suction catheter and we suction the blood clot out of the vein uh, a, to to release the, the clot out and to let blood flow better and for us to stop the blood clot from going into the lungs. So we don't do open surgery anymore as much for blood clots, uh, but we were in there on these COVID patients who were quite sick uh, declotting them, taking the clot out. That's, uh, that's amazing. Um, I, I want to get to patent ductus arteriosus and these cardiac issues, but there is a question from Margaret Ambersino saying, 
you know, we're just sitting around a lot, right? We're either on Zoom calls or we're not exercising as much. What are we seeing from a vascular perspective? Because in the past year, we have been moving less. We're not commuting. You know, there's so much normal activity we're not doing. Well, uh, you know, there's the other uh, parameter of, you know, COVID weight gain. So a lot of people are gaining weight because of COVID. Everybody's COVID, sitting. COVID-19, excuse me. Yes, the COVID-19. <laughs> you know, COVID-20 for some people, COVID-25 for some people. So uh, that's when Marina comes in, I think. She helps us lose all that weight. Um, but in, in terms of uh, mobility and getting around and walking around, it, it, it's, it's paramount. I think that every uh, two hours or an hour, People need to get up and walk around for five, 10 minutes just to get the circulation going. And it's not from the peripheral vascular disease, the peripheral, you know, the blockage of the arteries that we're concerned about. We're concerned more about patients sitting down for too long and either they're not hydrating very well or they're sitting in very uh, uncomfortable positions on their chairs and that's causing to have blood clots in their legs. And we've seen several, I would, you know, uh, in the past year, patients coming in and they're healthy and then they say, oh, I have a blood clot in my leg. And, and why is that? Because sitting cross-legged in front of a computer for six, seven hours on Zoom calls. So again, getting up every hour, walking around the, the apartment for five, 10 minutes or outside, getting some exercise just to get the blood circulation is, is helping a lot. We're finally going to come to you, Nicole. <laughs> we want to talk about this because this is a, a common finding, something called patent ductus arteriosus. And it's something that... Um, we, uh, I did some pediatric um, surgical critical care and, and, you know, something you're listening for when you listen to the heart. Uh, and, and just if you can, we have a graphic up uh, of what a patent ductus does. And if you can explain why it exists, because it's actually a normal uh, thing to have that patent ductus. If you can kind of walk us through um, the physiology of it. Sure. So yes, every single baby, every fetus has a patent ductus arteriosus. And as you can see in this first picture, it's a little tube that connects your aorta and your pulmonary arteries. And the reason it exists is because when you're a fetus, the fetus doesn't breathe. And so you actually don't need a lot of blood flow to your lungs because the baby's oxygen is coming from the mom's placenta. So the PDA allows the blood to bypass the lungs and go to the aorta. The best oxygenated blood that babies have comes right out of mom's placenta, goes in the IVC, and then if it makes it to the pulmonary arteries, you don't need it in your lungs, you need it in your aorta to go to your head and your neck and your body, so you skip it by going across that little tube into your aorta. And when you're born, it generally closes on its own within the first few weeks of life. And the way it closes is that it gets a signal from your body when you take a deep breath and you breathe in oxygen and your lungs open, it sends a signal that you don't need that anymore and that it's time to close it. They're very common, most common actually in premature babies who are born early and the PDA does not get the signal to close on time. Um, they can also persist in full-term babies and when they persist, they cause extra work. What they do is they make extra blood flow now, instead of going from your pulmonary artery to your aorta, your, it goes the other way. It goes from the aorta to the pulmonary artery. And that's because after you're born, the aortic pressure goes up because that's the blood pressure in your body and the pressure in your lungs goes down when you take those first few breaths. That causes more work for your lungs and actually what's called over circulation. Too much blood is going through those lungs. 
In the very long term, it can cause problems with something called pulmonary hypertension, which is high blood pressure in your lungs. It can exacerbate problems with breathing and asthma, things like that. And you don't need it. You also, um, it can get infected. Say you were to have uh, dental work and a little bit of bacteria gets in your bloodstream, it can get stuck in that, in that area and cause an infection. In general, if you have it and it's causing extra work for your heart, we see that on echocardiogram by dilation inside of your heart. And we can hear it when we listen, it makes a heart murmur. And so we would then close it. Sometimes we need to even close it in premature babies when they're, when they're first born, because especially in them, it can make a lot of extra work for lungs that are already struggling to do their job. And we have special devices for that. Um, there's a few that are, there's a few different ones on the market that can be used to close PDAs. Um, and there's a new one that came out about a year ago called the Piccolo, which means small, right? Everyone knows that word from uh, Italian. And it's for a premature um, ductus babies. And then there's a few other devices by different companies that we can use in different size PDAs and different size patients. And what you see here is a little picture of a catheter going through the heart across the PDA and putting in what looks like a little plug in the PDA. And those devices are putting this in this way is what I do. That's what an interventional cardiologist does. We put in those devices to close holes. And we, well, we, we also have, um, we have a picture, uh, a representation of what you had described earlier, an atrial septal, septal defect. Yes a hole between the two upper chambers of the heart. And, you know, in the old days, this was right. all open heart surgery. It was, was like 20, 30 years ago. I was a resident when we were operating to to close the PDA. And what we used to do was yeah. just tie it. Not me. Okay, the cardiac surgeon. Dr. Colvin. Dr. Colvin used to do it at NYU. Right. And it was a, it, it, when it was first done, it was almost like murder, right? You were going to operate on the baby's heart and, and do this and, and, and things have gotten so much better that they could do it and do it so safely and effectively, but this is even better. There's no pain for the child of, of having a sternotomy. There's, you know, you're not going in. It, these interventions are, are really fantastic. So we also have that slide on the ASD. So as, as Sujo and I both are like, yeah, we used to cut chests open and do all this. And, but uh, we want to show you this slide on the ASD because I think this is a, uh, a cool device. So if you could just go through this as well. Sure. So as you can see in the first, in, in, in the picture, that there's a hole on the top part of the heart between the right and left atria. And that's called an atrial septal defect. And we have actually with, with this as well, a few different devices that you can choose from to close this hole. And we do the same thing. We use a catheter and we can close it with a device. Now, both for PDAs and ASDs, we can't do 100% of these holes in the cath lab, but we can do a lot of them in the cath lab. And the recovery time for the children, is, and actually we can do this in adults as well, is much um, faster. So, you know, when you have open heart surgery, you're looking at probably five to seven, five days in the hospital and about six weeks of, of pain from the actual sternotomy. When we do this, you go home the next day and you go back to school. Say we do it on Tuesday, you'll go back to school on the next Monday. That's, that's really amazing. amazing. Yeah, that's really amazing. Um, I think we wanted to talk to Vic a bit about these peripheral vascular stents, right? You talked about how 
if you have, uh, if you're a smoker, if you're diabetic, if you're genetically predisposed, if your diet is poor, you put all this plaque in your blood vessels. So um, can you talk to us about how you put in a stent and when you put in a stent and when you have to open and remove the plaque? Sure. Uh, the um, So we work, uh, Dr. Sun and I work with catheters all the time. There's this, you know, thin plastic tube. Uh, and we actually puncture the artery in the groin and go through that and go wherever we need to go, whether it's in the carotid artery or in the arm or whether it's an aneurysm in the abdomen uh, or the lower extremities, we're able to get down and take pictures. And what we do is we inject dye, which is a colored liquid, let's say, and under X-ray imaging, we can see, you know, the garden hose, as I explained before, which is a wide garden hose and inside of it you can see the plaque buildup which is a makes the blood does uh, not go through very well so what we could do with that is and we can cross we can go through that little blockage and then once we go across it we're able to put a, a stent and a stent is um a chicken wire let's say and it just plops open and has a radial force that opens up wide as you can see on the graphic on the right side the the mesh wire opens up and it opens up with the balloon and squeezes that plaque uh out to the outside wall allowing for more blood flow to go across the artery now these are just temporizing things usually these stay open for several years a lot of times we need to go back in um, and see them again and re-balloon it reopen it up more uh, so that's why the patients see us every six months. We check on the stent with ultrasound and make sure that the flow is maintaining. That's number one. Second of all, if the stent becomes clogged up again, because a lot of these patients, unfortunately, they're diabetic and they're not controlling their sugar or they can't quit smoking or they're morbidly obese, the stent can get clogged up itself again. And so we go back in and try to reopen it up. And at times when we are doing this over and over again and the stent is just tired and will not reopen up, then at that point, we have to replace the artery with a plastic artery off the shelf or uh, using a vein from the patient. So those are the things that we, those are in our armamentarium to get circulation down to the lower extremity so the patient can walk and not have ulcers or uh, worse gangrene. So unfortunately, we only have five minutes left and we have so much we want to talk about. So I want, you know, Sudha Parikh had written in that she knew somebody who had to be flown somewhere 35 years ago and have a procedure. And I bet you that was for Tetralogy of Fellow. And I bet you that was uh, Blaylock Dowsig Shunt, right, I think. So um, what I found amazing was that in my inherent uh, chauvinism, I actually thought Blaylock and Taussig were both just men who invented something. But in fact, no. Taussig is the mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, grandsire of pediatric cardiology, and she was amazing. Uh, Blaylock was a cardiac surgeon. And then there was a third person, and we have a really nice picture of all three people who invented this BTT shunt. The third person was a tech, a, a technologist named Vivian Thomas, and he was an African-American man who actually stood behind uh, Dr. Blaylock to tell him where to cut and where to sew to do the first shunt. And this was remarkable. And uh, this, had, this started in 1944. 
And maybe you can talk to us about what happens with this, Nicole. Sure. So the 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 Blaylock Tausig Thomas Shunt now BTT um, is one of the first things that was done in pediatric cardiology, uh, pediatric cardiac surgery that really changed the way that we could manage people. What had been noticed was that in some patients, when their PDA, their patent ductus arteriosus, stayed open, they were able to live longer. And so the idea that Dr. Tausig had was to actually make of, to make one. And so they worked with animal models mm -hmm. until they figured out how to do that. And it became really one of the most common surgeries that was done and has been used for many different types of congenital heart disease, such as tetralogy of Fallot and single ventricles to um, ameliorate the situation until the babies are older and can maybe have other surgeries. You know, last uh, our last show, um, we, we actually had uh, Dr. Julie Freischlag on and we made brief mention of the carotid and our direction. I think we have just enough time. We have a slide, Vic. My dogs are excited about it too. Uh, we have a slide on carotid and our direct me. If you can just quickly run through and, and tell us like who, why, why do you do this? And I actually put that plaque picture up because it's so disgusting that I thought our, our viewers would appreciate it. <laughs> right, so very quickly, again, uh, the, the, the disease process of atherosclerotic plaque buildup which happens in the legs, can also happen anywhere in the body, it can happen in the kidneys, it can happen in the arteries of the liver, and it can happen mainly in the carotid arteries, which are the two arteries on either side, the, the right carotid and the left carotid, causing blockage in the blood flow to the brain. And whenever that happens, that plaque that's sitting there on the left side of your screen can form and it can become almost like an ulcer, it can be almost like cottage cheese as you can see on the plaque on the right side, the, uh, the anatomy uh, picture. And that little plaque that can break up and go into the brain can give you a stroke. So that's when we see patients who are uh, smokers, diabetic, diabetics, uh, hypertensives, who are over the age of 55, we do a crowded ultrasound in the office. If we do find that blockage in the artery, then we go in and make a little cut in the neck, go down, clean up that um, junk or the plaque or the the calcium and whatever it is, and then reclose the artery nicely so that it doesn't embolize, doesn't go up into the brain so we can prevent strokes in patients. That's fantastic. You know, we started by saying 90% of kids with congenital heart disease survive, but some kids thrive. So on Twitter, I asked if anybody knew a three-time Olympic gold medalist who had had two cardiac surgeries before he was one year old, and it was Sean White yep. with no border. Can you believe this? He had Tetralogy of Fellow and he had two operations before the age of one. I have not had any cardiac operations and I'm not even making the Olympic team. We want to thank both of our guests so much. Um, we were live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We're carried on WBAI.org and WBAI 99.5 FM, Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. You can always catch our show again on uh, YouTube. And we're uh, so excited to have spent this hour with Dr. Vic Pamukian and Dr. Nicole Sutton. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us all. As you all know, our, this show could not happen without credits to our producers uh, who keep this running so smoothly. And stay tuned for next week's show. It's going to be the Hearing Health Show. And we'll have Dr. Shelly Chada, who's the director of the WHO program for the prevention of deafness and hearing loss, and Dr. Charles Lim, 
a premier researcher in cochlear implants and music at UCSF, and he's president-elect of the American Auditory Society. So stay tuned for that. Bye. You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage is not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal. Where new stories make tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami. And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. 